0: Forlock Forbach Reads Produced by the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library Hello? Who's there? Is anyone there? I don't know if anyone is listening, but it is lonely here in the dark. It has been a while since my last signal but I will project my voice into the void so that it will reach ears that will find enjoyment and consultation through the art of literature. Welcome back to Warlock Vorobock Reads, a Cincinnati and Hamilton County public library podcast. You may recall that I've read some of the best and most ghoulish supernatural tales found in the public domain. This time, I'm going to read something a little different. I'm going to read poetry containing supernatural elements or subjects, starting in the ancient Greek times and moving chronologically forward to about the turn of the 20th century. A history lesson, you might say. Along the way, I'll provide a little biographical information about the poet and some historical content to help provide you context for when the poem was written. The horror genre, or the supernatural, in Western civilization is oft-credited as originating from Gothic novels. The Castle of Untranto by Horace Walpole was published in 1764 and established many of the traditions that marked gothic and supernatural tales to come. Secret passages, trap doors, moving pictures, and doors that open and close by themselves. But the supernatural could be found in literature even earlier than that. We will start our journey with perhaps the most famous journey of them all, The Odyssey by ancient Greek poet Homer. In ancient Greek myths, gods and goddesses and various mythological creatures roamed the earth, playing key parts in the human drama. These events were passed from generation to generation through the oral tradition of poetry throughout the Dark Ages, a time when writing disappeared. The end of the Dark Ages is sometimes associated with the most famous of ancient Greek poets, Homer, who is often depicted as being blind. There we have our first problem. Who was Homer? The thing is, nobody really knows. Homer is often the authorial name associated with the Iliad and the Odyssey, but scholars disagree if Homer was a single person or a group of poets. The name Homer itself leads to its own speculation. It is an Ionian word from the western coast of Turkey that means hostage, but it is thought to be a term that described various blind men who wandered the countryside reciting poetry. Scholars also disagree whether he or they wrote both epics, and if the poems were originally composed orally, written down, or some combination of the two. Finally, even the exact dates of their compositions are unknown. They are commonly believed to have been composed sometime between 800 and 750 BCE, before current era, which is generally when it is thought that the Greeks began writing in their own alphabet. This same period of time would have Greeks colonize in various places throughout the Mediterranean and Black Seas. The first historic solar eclipse was recorded in China. Eclipses often show up in ancient Greek poetry as omens from the gods and goddesses. The Odyssey would continue to live on throughout the centuries, but would not be published in English until 1614, over 2,000 years later. I will be reading two sections from the Samuel Butler Prose Poem Translation, which can be found for free on Project Gutenberg. First a section from Book 9 concerning the Cyclops, Polyphemus, and then from Book 12, Circe's warning about the Sirens, Skyla, and Charybdis. From Book 9, The Cyclops. Strangers, who are you? Where do you sail from? Are you traitors, or do you sail the sea as rovers? with your hands against every man, and every man's hand against you. We were frightened out of our senses by his loud voice and monstrous form, but I managed to say, we are Achaeans on our way home from Troy, but by the will of Jove and stress of weather, we have been driven far out of our course. We are the people of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, who has won infinite renown throughout the whole world by sacking so great a city and killing so many people. We therefore humbly pray you to show us some hospitality and otherwise make us such presents as visitors may reasonably expect. May your Excellency fear the wrath of heaven, for we are your suppliants, and Jove takes all respectable travelers under his protection, for he is the avenger of all suppliants and foreigners in distress. To this he gave me but a pitiless answer. Stranger, said he, you are a fool, or else you know nothing of this country. Talk to me, indeed, about fearing the gods or shunning their anger. We Cyclopses do not care about Jove or any of your blessed gods, for we are ever so much stronger than they. I shall not spear either yourself or your companions out of any regard for Jove, unless I am in the humor for doing so. And now tell me where you made your ship fast when you came on shore. Was it round the point, or is she lying straight off the land? He said this to draw me out, but I was too cunning to be caught in that way, so I answered with a lie. Neptune, said I, sent my ships on to the rocks at the far end of your country and wrecked it. We were driven on to them from the open sea, but I and those who are with me escaped the jaws of death. The cruel wretch vouchsafed me not one word of answer, but with a sudden clutch he gripped up two of my men at once and dashed them down upon the ground as though they had been puppies. Their brains were shed upon the ground, and the earth was wet with their blood. Then he tore them limb from limb and supped upon them. He gobbled them up like a lion in the wilderness, flesh, bones, marrow, and entrails, without leaving anything uneaten. As for us, we wept, and lifted up our hands to heaven on seeing such a horrid sight for we did not know what else to do but when the cyclops had filled his huge paunch and had washed down his meal of human flesh with a drink of neat milk he stretched himself full length upon the ground among his sheep and went to sleep i was at first Inclined to seize my sword, draw it, and drive it into his vitals. But I reflected that if I did, we should all certainly be lost. For we should never be able to shift the stone which the monster had put in front of the door. So we stayed sobbing and sighing where we were till morning came. When the child of morning, rosy-fingered dawn, appeared, he again lit his fire, milked his goats and ewes, all quite rightly, and then let each of her own young one. As soon as he had got through with all of his work, he clutched up two more of my men and began eating them for his morning meal. Presently, with the utmost ease, he rode the stone away from the door and drove out his sheep. But he at once put it back again, as easily as though he were merely clapping the lid onto a quiver full of arrows. As soon as he had done so, he shouted and cried, Shoo! Shoo! after his sheep to drive them onto the mountain. So I was left to scheme some way of taking my revenge and covering myself with glory. From Book 12, The Sirens, Skyla, and Charybdis. So far so good, said she when I ended my story. And now pay attention to what I am about to tell you. Heaven itself indeed will recall it to your recollection. First, you will come to the sirens who enchant all who come near them. If anyone unwearily draws in too close, and hears the singing of the sirens, his wife and children will never welcome him home again. For they sit in a green field and warble him to death with the sweetness of their song. There is a great heap of dead men's bones lying all around, with the flesh still rotten off them. Therefore pass these sirens by and stop your men's ears with wax, that none of them may hear. But if you like, you can listen yourself for you may get the men to bind you as you stand upright on a cross piece halfway up the mast and they must lash the rope's ends to the mast itself that you may have the pleasure of listening. If you beg and pray the men to unloose you, then they must bind you faster. When your crew have taken you past these sirens, I cannot give you coherent directions as to which of two courses you are to take. I will lay the two alternatives before you, and you must consider them For yourself on the one hand there are some overhanging rocks against which the deep blue waves of amphitrite beat with terrific fury the blessed gods call these rocks the wanderers here not even a bird may pass no not even the timid doves that bring ambrosia to father Jove but the sheer rock always carries off one of them, and Father Jove has to send another to make up their number. No ship that ever yet came to these rocks has got away again, but the waves and whirlwinds of fire are freighted with wreckage and with the bodies of dead men. The only vessel that ever sailed and got through was the famous Argo, on her way from the house of Aetes, and she too would have gone against these great rocks, only that Juno piloted her past them for the love she bore to Jason. Of these two rocks, the one reaches heaven, and its peak is lost in a dark cloud. This never leaves it, so that the top is never clear, not even in summer, in early autumn, no man, though he had twenty hands and twenty feet, could get a foothold on it and climb it, for it runs sheer up as smooth as though it had been polished. In the middle of it, there is a large cavern looking west and turned towards Erebus. You must take your ship this way, but the cave is so high up that not even the stoutest archer could send an arrow into it. Inside it, Skyla sits and yelps with a voice that you might take to be that of a young hound. But in truth, she is a dreadful monster, and no one, not even a god, could face her without being terror-struck. She has twelve misshapen feet and six necks of the most prodigious length. And at the end of each neck, she has a frightful head with three rows of teeth in each, all set very close together so that they would crunch anyone to death in a moment. And she sits deep within her shady cell, thrusting out her heads and peering all around the rock, Fishing for dolphins or dogfish or any larger monster that she can catch Of the thousands with which Infutritee teems. No ship ever yet got past her without losing some men, For she shoots out all her heads at once And carries off a man in each mouth. You will find the other rock lie lower, But they are so close together that there is not more than a bow shot between them. A large fig tree in full leaf grows upon it, and under it lies the sucking whirlpool of Charybdis. Three times in the day does she vomit forth her waters, and three times she sucks them down again. See that you be not there when she is sucking, for if you are, Neptune himself could not save you. You must hug the skyless side and drive ship by as fast as you can, for you had better lose six men than your whole crew." Thank you very much for listening. I hoped that you enjoyed those segments from the Odyssey. Maybe check it out from the library or go to our digital collection and get the audiobook or ebook version. And I hope that you take the journey with me through other examples of supernatural poetry. Till next time. Thanks for listening to Vorbach, Vorbach Reads. Subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss future episodes. And discover more of our podcasts at cincinnatilibrary.org podcasts.